Hey, thanks for tuning into The Way, our Wednesday night service. This week, we'll hear a message from Pastor Andy Bowles. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to share a statement. And I want you to do something that most every preacher would probably advise me not to do. Um, any, or any public speaker, for that matter, would probably advise a, uh, a speaker not to do. And that is, I'm going to give this statement, and I want you to analyze this statement to the nth degree. I mean, I want you to hash this thing out. I want you to so focus on every word that you dissect by definition with the definition that you retain in your own mind of understanding. I want you to, when you hear this statement, to, 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 to scrutinize it to the point to where you can, at the conclusion of all that we do tonight, so understand it that it's not just something that is in your mind, but, but instead it is something that, that, that you can apply in your everyday life and resources. And that statement is this. Confusion begins with assumption. Confusion begins with assumption. Now, now, because I want you to scrutinize that, analyze that, dissect that as much as you possibly can, I'll give you just a moment to let those words sink deeply into your mind, your vocabulary, your reasoning. Confusion begins with assumption. Now, because I want you to carry this as far as you possibly can within your reasoning, I'm going to give you the definition of the two words in this, which is confusion and assumption. Confusion, by definition, is lack of understanding or uncertainty. Assumption is a thing that is accepted as true without proof. Again, Confusion, a lack of understanding or you're uncertain about something. It's, it brings on confusion. I think sometimes if I were to separate myself from the Google definition, I would think of confusion and I would say something that is chaotic. I would say this Sunday morning, I'm going to volunteer for frog ministry. And I see none of you have volunteered for frog ministry. <laughs> I'm going to go in that room with three to six-year-olds and I'm going to open that door up and there's going to be kids circling all over the place. And if you, you ever try to count a group of kids that are running? One, two, three, wait. There's 7,000 right here. It's got to be, you know? That's kind, of what, that's kind of my mind. Chaos. There's confused. It's not allowing me to be able to reason, understand. But, but, but the Google definition, and this might line up with you because you're a lot smarter than I am, lack of understanding of our, or uncertainty. But then assumption, a thing that is accepted as true without proof. I cannot tell you how many times I find myself trying to fact check myself so that I don't live in an area of assumption in my life. One of the things that I want to avoid as a Christian, one of the things that I want to avoid as a leader, one of the things that I want to avoid as a pastor, preacher, husband, father, friend, is assumption, because I know where assumption can lead me. Assumption can lead me down a wrong road, make a fool out of me, and everybody else who listens to me follows me. I want to make sure that everything that I do, I live by a place that is factual with foundation and lived upon through faith because of Christ in me. So I think of that word assumption, a thing that is accepted as true 
without proof. <laughs> and so when you think of confusion, begins with assumption. Maybe to put this out there first, the thing that is accepted as true without proof, and then behind that, a lack of understanding or uncertainty. And of course, assumption will always bring, bring confusion. So confusion begins with assumption. Now, why are we talking so much about that? It's because our next disciple that we're going to be talking about over the next three Wednesdays, that guy is known as Thaddeus. Thaddeus was a disciple that we've noted as someone who was confused. Thaddeus the confused. And, and don't worry, he's not going to be confused for very long. He's confused for a moment, but he's going from confusion to a place of enlightenment. Why? Because Jesus is there. How many of you ever felt confused in life? And you confused because you, you, you've made all these assumptions and now you're at this place in life and you're thinking, wow, how did I get here? Thaddeus was, was kind of one of those guys that not a whole lot is mentioned of him in the Bible. Again, he's one of those guys like in Matthew 10, 3, just in the listing of the disciples to whom Jesus referenced to. Mark also mentions Thaddeus. As a matter of fact, uh, the main passage that we're going to use over these next three Wednesday nights is not even a passage that uses his proper name, which is Thaddeus. It uses another name which kind of introduces a little bit more confusion to the situation. And so what we want to do is we want to see Thaddeus as the person who's going from confused to enlightenment because Jesus is there. And the same reason that Thaddeus can go from a place of confusion to enlightenment is because Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Jesus is with you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have the Word of God before you. There may be moments of your life to where you are confused, and there may be moments of your life because of confusion, you step out with some, with some uh, uh, assumptions, or maybe you've made some assumptions, and now you find yourself in a place of confusion. And That might be you, but that's not going to be long-term you. That's going to be short-term you, and the reason it's going to be short-term you is because Jesus is coming in with some enlightenment. Why? Because you seek the truth. And as people who seek the truth, those who seek the truth will find the truth because truth is not far from us because of the Holy Spirit is who, who is inside of us and, and the word of God that is before us. And, and so John chapter 14, if you got your Bible, slip over with me as we correct this buzzing in the, in the microphone. Am I the only one hearing that? Okay, John chapter 14, verse 22 and verse 23. Now, who did we last learn about in the month of June? Judas, that's exactly right. Don't, don't, you stay with me in these couple of verses. I really need you to focus in on what this verse says because if you're not careful, you'll think we're still stuck on last month. Judas saith unto him, What's the next two words? Not Iscariot. Last month we learned about a character by the name of Judas Iscariot. This is the one who betrayed Jesus. This is the one that we talked about, a person of pride, a person of self-ambition, all of these negative things associated with him. And we learn with each disciple that there's a little bit of every disciple inside of us. If we talk about Peter, we'll talk about boldness. If we talk about Andrew, one who is seeking out others to come to know Christ. We think of one who's, who's kind of that guy who's anonymous or, or not out 
front, kind of like some of the disciples we've already learned about. Judas for us, not this Judas, but the other Judas, we can see that sometimes we make life about us. And when we make life about us, then all of a sudden life is not worth living because it's about us. It needs to be about something greater than us. This next guy, Thaddeus, his name was also Judas, and it's not the Judas who is from Iscariot. And I love the way the Holy Spirit makes sure that that is a very evident thing because, again, this Judas, Thaddeus, is going from confused to enlightenment. He says, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world. Keep it on verse 22 for just a second because I want to make a, make a note here. This again is the King James translation that we're reading. Some of you guys may have a different translation in your lap or you'll study this later. And some translations take the word how out and they'll say in, in another way, what? And, and now, of course, a lot of the other words are, are going to be shifted around. Lord, how is it that thou will manifest ourselves? Lord, what are you going to do to manifest yourself? The same question is, is still evident. Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, guys, I'm going to show you ultimately who I really am. You guys have got just a very small picture of who I am. Some of you guys have made some assumptions, and now you're confused on who I am. But there's going to come a moment to where I so reveal myself, not just to you, but the entire world. The world's going to see who I am. And when that happens, it's going to blow your mind. Now here he says, how are you going to manifest yourself unto us and not unto the world? Then verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words. Again, Thaddeus, he's confused about how God is going or how Jesus is going to reveal himself unto the disciples and not to the world. And really his confusion came over the word of God and the spirit of God and how the word of God relates itself with the spirit of God. And those are the next two subjects over the next two Wednesday nights. The same passage of scripture is what we'll look at. But he says, Jesus in the description are helping him understand how this is going to happen. If a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode in him. The Holy Spirit will take up residence in that individual's life. So here Jesus is helping Thaddeus understand that it is both the combination of the truth of God's word and his Holy Spirit that will ultimately be revealed. But in this moment, I want you to be enlightened to understand, don't make a assumptions, but instead place your faith on something that is factual right before you that I will and I can and I desire that you get it so that when you get it, you can share it to those lost in the world so that they can ultimately get it. Now, how did Jesus ultimately reveal himself to his disciples? Ultimately, how is he known to the world? Now, <laughs> If I were to give just kind of the general picture of how that took place, it was obviously in the crescendo of all things in the Gospels. When you're reading through your Bible and, and you finish up the Old Testament, the first thing you do is go, because it was the Old Testament. How <laughs> I many of y'all ever read through the Old Testament? Man, it's some amazingly wonderful and valuable things in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament, as you read through the prophets and the laws and the begots, sometimes it can be a little bit of weight on you and you get to the conclusion of that and you find yourself in the Gospels and it's like a fresh air, it's like a drama, it's like a story, it's history. And you're reading in these transitional books through it. 
But at the, at the end of each one of these, I, I led a guy to Jesus years ago. He was hungry for the Bible. He wanted to know where to start in the Bible. I knew he was a young Christian. I said, you'll never go wrong by starting off reading in the Gospels. Start off in Matthew, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John. It was a couple of a weeks later, he called me up and he said, man, I, you know, I'm new to Christianity. I'm new to the Bible. How many times is Jesus going to die? Because Jesus died in Matthew and Jesus died in Mark and Jesus is dying in Luke. And man, his heart is hurting because Jesus is dying so much. And so I had to tell him, no, 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 no. What you're reading is you're reading four accounts of the same record. You're seeing these different perspectives of Jesus in this one instance. Jesus died one time. He was buried and three days later he rose from the dead. That is the epitome of the gospel. How did Jesus reveal himself to his disciples that he is who he said he is? If you go back into chapter 13, the reason that Jesus starts this upper room discourse is what it's called, 14 to 16. In verse 1 of chapter 14, he says, guys, don't let your hearts be so unsettled. You believe that God is who he said he is. You can believe that I am who I say I am. And then he begins to describe him. The reason that he does that is because at the conclusion of chapter 13, he had to tell the disciples, hey guys, don't miss, he's been telling them this thing. Don't miss this. Others didn't get to hear this intimate setting, this personal conversation that he's revealing to them, that he's showing to them. Don't miss this, that Jesus is saying of himself that I must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. I'm going to be mistreated by those sinful men. They're going to lead me through mockery and I'm going to be crucified on the cross. And these guys understood in a greater depth than what we do sometimes about crucifixion. Nobody in the first century ever walked around with a cross hanging around their neck. It's not wrong for us to wear cross jewelry or have crosses hanging up because it reminds us of what Jesus, God in flesh, did for us that our sins might be forgiven. It's not wrong that that happens, but back in that day, it would be the equivalent of if we walked around all the time with a little electric chair shaped in gold in jewelry around our neck. Because the cross was a place of execution. It was a cruel place. It was a, it was a horrific place. It was to where the one who was being crucified had no clothing. That's the best way I can describe it. They're in absolute open shame. Most of the time, their bodies had been beaten somewhat. Jesus greater than any that, that we know that have been recorded. And then, then they, were to, they were to die. They were to suffocate on the cross to hasten their suffocation. If they weren't dying quick enough, they would send guys that would come and with a club break the shin bones of the leg to where they couldn't push up for air anymore to get air so they could breathe and they would suffocate a lot quicker. That happened the day that Jesus died. That's the reason they put a, sore, a spear through his side and blood and water flowed out of his side. Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified. What? Can you just imagine someone you love describing to you in the manner of which they will die and it's horrific? 
Your mind would probably be just like these disciples. It probably would pause in that moment and think and think and think. But Jesus had more of a message than just I'm going to die. How is he going to, in the greater way, reveal himself to his disciples and ultimately to the world? He says, I'm going to be crucified, buried, and three days later, y'all help me out. What did he do? He rose from the dead. And I believe that with all of my heart. And so, so here we've got this coming out of that. This passage is coming out of that thought. And so here's Thaddeus, here's Judas, not Iscariot. Don't confuse him. Don't make no assumptions based on his name. But instead, we've got Thaddeus who says, Now, Lord, how are you going to show us who you are without showing everybody else who you are? Understand this, that in the world there are many opinions of who Jesus is. The world has fashioned for itself idols by its own hands and its own doing, with its own heart, with its own mind, in, 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 in lustful things and with imaginations and perspectives and philosophies that are contradictory to the Bible or Jesus. There has been a lot of gods made by man in the world, but one of the most self-pleasing things man has done in a Christian saturated culture is make Jesus somebody who he's not. A God that is fixed to help fit their personality, their perspective, their desire, their ambition, their theology, their doctrine. Somebody that does what they want, a, 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 a hole that he can fit in. And so they've got to shave all things about the true Jesus to get him to fit there. And so what, what is it that makes a person in a world that has so many gods and oftentimes there is the promotion of a fictitious Jesus or a made-up Jesus to be able to see the real Jesus. Now, the two things that Thaddeus is going to get, we'll see that over the next two Wednesdays, from the Word and by the Spirit. The word of God that is true, set before us, inerrant, has no issues whatsoever, does not contradict itself, is a word that can teach us exactly who God is. When I, I was asked this past Friday at Righteous Oaks at Impact, you know, me with a panel of guys, you know, how, how do I approach the Bible and, and Bible study? Are there questions or prayers that I pray? And, and I said, the, the question that I ask myself when I read the Bible is, God, who are you telling me you are? Who is God? God tells me who he is through this book that he has written for me and the Holy Spirit who, who bears witness of that, who reveals truth. There, there is truth that is in a greater sense understood, not just by education, but by revelation. And here, here Thaddeus, now, now where has Thaddeus come from? You, you got to remember, he's been following Jesus for quite some time. He knows Jesus can do amazing things. I'm not throwing Thaddeus under the bus in verse 22. Go back to verse 22 and you'll see that he says, Lord, how, how, how are you going to do this? It, it's, it's, uh, like I say, I don't want, I don't want to point him out as, as being too terribly off subject here. 
But he did just get finished in John chapter 5 seeing Jesus show up at the pool of Bethsaida to where there are a bunch of people who are in a lot of physical needs. There are lame people, blind people, all, all deaf people, people who are sick, and, and they're all waiting on an angel to come and stir the waters of Bethsaida so that they can get into this pool and be healed. Jesus shows up, sees this guy. He's been laying there for 38 years. He don't have nobody to help him in. When the waters get stirred, somebody goes in front of him and he's just in a situation. And Jesus shows up and Jesus heals this man. John chapter six, Jesus feeds the 5,000 miraculously with little loaves and little fish. John chapter nine, there's the, there's the blind man that, that gets healed and and the story goes on and on. Chapter 13, Jesus, with humility, stoops down and washes the nasty, crusty, dirty feet of the disciples. He's doing all of this. And yet, Thaddeus says, Lord, how in what manner are you going to manifest yourself unto us and not the Lord? It was almost like he was making the assumption that, God, you can't do that. Jesus, you, you can't, you, you can't. You can't, it's got to be one or the other. It can't be separated like this. It's either you can't manifest yourself to anybody or you've got to manifest yourself to everybody. Jesus, tell us really how this is even possible. And then Jesus says what he says there in verse 23. So here's, here's a thought that I want to I lean into is, is if confusion begins with assumption, if all of us can be at least on that page for just a moment, then, then this is how we need to approach that thought. Don't assume that God can't or God won't. How many times in life do you approach life situations? That, that you approach, <clears throat> sometimes we can, in most cases we think trouble. Approach trouble with God can or God won't. But, but I know just as many people who when trouble come in their life and the thing seems to be bigger than God, they say God can't or God won't because it's too big, the trouble is there. I know just as many people who when successes happen in life, <laughs> you see, when it's a trouble, I'll never get out of this mess. When it's a success, that'll never happen to me again. You, you see what I'm saying? Don't make these, these assumptions, right? If, if, if confusion begins with assumption, then, then somewhere down the road we're confused about who our God is and our God is different than the God of this world. He is not a God that we've imagined or made up. He is a God who has written us a book about himself who with the person of his Holy Spirit who lives in us, who is around us, who is showing us who he is. We just need to make sure that we don't assume that God can't or that God won't because I assure you, God can and God does want to. He wants to. And so there's three subjects that I've thought about a lot of times that we have trouble dealing with when we think of in this assumption that leads to conclusion, uh, leads to, uh, excuse me, this, this, this confusion that leads to assumption. I think of these three subjects. Number one, God either can't or God won't totally forgive. God either can't 
or he won't totally forgive. Now, <clears throat> let me say this real quick. There's probably a lot of things that are firing off in your brain right now about that statement. Some of you guys may have, be, may have been in a place to where now you are in a place and, and <clears throat> your, your life that you lived, man, it was tough. And you have received the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ and you have been saved, born again. <laughs> and you say, totally forgive. He totally forgave me. And you can, you can feel so comfortable in the moment of that thought. Either God can or God won't. Yes, he will. He'll totally forgive because he totally forgave me. Some of you may be in the thought process of saying, totally forgive. Yeah, he can't. He won't me because of this. Or maybe you're the kind of person who when you think of things that are told to you, maybe, maybe your mind didn't go to you at all. Maybe it went to them. Yeah, God can't forgive them or won't forgive them. <laughs> you see, whenever our thoughts are, are, are externally focused, this, this is the way I think. This is just my humble and yet accurate opinion. I think everything we receive in life of truth should be first applied to us before we apply it to others. I think that's how we make sure that there's not a plank in our eye trying to get a speck out of somebody else's eye, that we're washed over with truth first. And then we, then we use that for the sake of others. Totally forgive. Can, can God totally forgive me? Absolutely. Can God totally forgive them? Absolutely. Why? Because God delights and he pleasures in forgiving. Psalm chapter 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. I love that psalm. The psalmist is writing a glory story in song. He wants everybody to sing this in the temple on the Sabbath day. Hey guys, be reminded, I know you've come from a very hard, long week to where you have been tempted in so many different ways to do wrong and possibly you've caved into doing wrong. But I want you to remember that we have a God who welcomes our confession. And when we say, forgive me, he is one who hears that, receives you, cleans you up. First John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just. He's faithful. He's just. He's the only one who can forgive us and cleanse us from all of our wrongdoing or our unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. If you think about it, on the compass, there's four different directions. There's north and south, and north will eventually run into south, and south will eventually run into north. But east and west can't be measured. You'll go as far east, and you'll just keep going east and east and east. And as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions, our lawlessness, our sin from us. God is the kind of God who, when you pray, when your heart is moved in confession to agree with him that you've done right and he is wrong and the only way that you can be cleansed from your wrong is to come to him who is right, he is so willing to cleanse you up and to take your sin, your transgression, and cast it far from you. 
Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 is another passage. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, Jesus. Seeing he, Jesus, ever lives to make intercession for them. I love this verse because it kind of encapsulates both ideas of forgiveness. Can I be forgiven to be saved? Welcomed into the family of God, accepted by him? Absolutely. In other words, the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross has enough power to forgive and save anyone. He is able to save them to the uttermost. There is no one who is too far gone for God. Not only is he able to save them, secure them through himself, he says unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Not only are we saved by him, he is interceding for us. Can he? Will he forgive totally? <laughs> Another verse, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 11. And it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Now in this proverb, in the first part of that, it's an applicable statement for us. But even in this picture, we can see that, man, there's an image of God in that as well. And it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Not to, to ignore, not to leave undealt with. God is the kind of God who deals with things. He is, he's not worried about conflict, but instead he moves in with correction and love and deals with the sin. But it is, it is, it is his glory to to pass over, pass over with grace and mercy and love and forgiveness, a transgression, a sin. You see, don't assume forgiveness is not available. You'll miss the God who really is one who desires to forgive. So if confusion begins with an assumption, then don't assume that God can't or God won't totally forgive. Don't assume that God can't or God won't completely transform because he will. You, you, you say, okay, Andy, if I'm focusing on me and I'm, I'm going to receive this truth and everybody else, I, I'll share that as I get it. And I understand that, that I am totally forgiven. I am saved. I am in the family of God. Then I'm going to enter into this family and I'm going to be the same in this family as I was outside of this family. Or at the very least, there's some things that I am doing that is different than I was. And that's good because that shows that I'm a follower of Jesus now. I'm saved. Jesus moves in. Junk moves out. And so there's some change that is happening. But Andy, do you honestly really 100% believe that there can be complete transformation inside of me? What about the things I've been doing for a long, long time? What about the cycles that are so hard to break? What about the pattern that seems to be so redundant? Can I really be transformed? Transformation is something that happens from the inside out. 
To be conformed means outside in. To be transformed, it means to be inside out. What I believe God is willing to do with anyone who will trust in him, anyone who will submit themselves unto his authority, anyone who is willing to step out in risk that is really not as much risk as what you think and do what he's called us to do in the Bible, I believe that there is an inside out change that can happen that will completely radicalize who you are. We, we all know the verse, 2 Corinthians 517, as a matter of fact, we have a whole ministry that is based on that verse. Therefore, if anybody is found in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new or becoming new. Inside of this relationship, there is change because there is growth. And change that leads to growth inside out means transformation is taken Place. It's the caterpillar that is becoming the butterfly. Sometimes you can see it in motion. Sometimes you can't see it in motion. But be assured the caterpillar is going to become the, the butterfly. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. There is a change that is happening on the inside of us. I want you to understand on this passage of Scripture, it is giving us the idea of something that is a little bit more conditional. Go back to verse 1, and you'll see that transformation can come as you... Present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is not something that is going to blow anybody's mind. I was listening to a guy the other day that said sometimes people look at people who are successful and have a lot of accomplishments and they think they've done extraordinary things that made them successful. And the guy said this, no, they've just done ordinary things consistently that made them successful. Y'all didn't get that. I'm, I'm watching YouTube freaking out, thanking Jesus for some truth, and y'all looking at me like, what do you say? <laughs> Come on. I mean, it, it, isn't that, isn't that, we, we see somebody who, who seems so accomplished and has done so well, and we say, they, they've done some extraordinary things. If they've done anything extraordinary, it's just the ordinary consistent. Here, this is nothing unreasonable. Live in a sacrificial manner that God is pleased with. Verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be Transform, let your mind be renewed so that you may be able to understand what God's will and plan is. Just do the ordinary in a consistent manner. You think about people in the Bible who, who seem to be so successful and you think of guys like 
Abraham who made his mistakes but did become the father of many nations. And you, you think of guys like Moses who made his mistakes but, but in an ordinary consistent sense continued to serve the Lord. And, and he's known as the guy who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament as used by God to lead the nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. You think of David. Yeah, he had his problems but this is a shepherd in which wrote several Psalms and led the nation of Israel successfully as he did. And Solomon, and you just think through that line of Daniel and, and Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego. What was his name? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, y'all try to preach that. And so you, you got those guys and, 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 and the list just goes on and on. And I think, I think, about, I think about a guy like Peter, I think it's probably so much more evident that this guy, this guy, I mean, you mean to tell you who Peter was? Peter was the guy who was always picked last for dodgeball. <laughs> Peter, Peter was the guy who, who was sitting by himself in the classroom after all the classroom was collected and left out for beta club. That was me too, by the way. I felt I hurt after I said that. <laughs> Peter, Peter. Some of y'all are like, what's beta club? With you, bro, with you. <laughs> Peter was, was that guy who, <clears throat> who Jesus says, hey man, come on, get your boat and cast it out a little bit. Because he, he knew who Jesus was at this point. He had actually began to start following Jesus. Jesus wants to, to, to project his voice over the water with his teachings and he needs Peter's boat to go out a little bit he does a little fishing with Peter. He realizes, man, Peter, Peter's kind of got a foul mouth. Peter starts off as a skeptic who is ready to revolt against Rome because he hates them, who's foul-mouthed, who has religion, but it does not facilitate faith. It facilitates a facade. It's religiosity. And yet Jesus shows up and Jesus spends some time with Peter. Say, Andy, how can I see the greatest amount of change in my life? Look what you're doing with your time. If you're wasting your time on a bunch of junk that don't matter, that's why you, you're stuck in the way you are. Spend some time with Jesus because when Jesus shows up, Jesus begins to change some things and here's Peter, he's getting changed and all of a sudden, a moment of crisis happens and what does he do? He freaks out. I don't even know who this is. And then Jesus shows up again and restores him. Transformation. He goes from this cursing sailor to the one God used in Acts chapter two in the day of Pentecost and even a lot further than that. See, sometimes we get confused by words that say I am or they are changed and see something differently, kind of like with Peter. But what we have to do is, if confusion begins with assumption, don't make assumptions for what we can't see, but trust that we're surrendered to God and he's doing things that we can't see for things that ultimately we will see. <laughs> That God is making changes in our life as we submit our life to him. God 
Cain or God won't totally forgive me for all I've done. He, he may have saved me, but <clears throat> he can't completely transform me. God, God can or he won't powerfully help me. Everybody, I think, likes some help. But let's put it this way. Let's just say that you have a flat tire, 2 a.m. on Interstate 20, 17 miles east of Forest. You don't know nobody. You're stranded. You're tired. You make a phone call, and somebody says, hey, yeah, yeah, I'll be there in a minute. And so you're like, okay, they're coming. You sit in your car, and it's hot. You roll your seat back. You start getting a little bit of nap. Some of the, the trucks are blowing a breeze in your lowered window. <clears throat> and then it's been two hours. Call them back. Oh, I'm sorry, I fell asleep. Y'all, hey, guy, I've been that guy before, y'all. <laughs> That's a terrible feeling. In comparison to the guy who says, hey, man, I need some help. Where are you at? I'm 17 miles east of Forest on Interstate 20. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, I'm just two miles down the road. I'll be right there. An ever-present, ready, full of power, beyond your imagination kind of help. A power, when this power is kicked in, it's not a halfway, it's not an almost there, it's an all the way. The Bible uses this word surety. It's a guaranteed thing. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. God is able. God can and God does desire to. Psalm chapter 30, verse 10, another verse. Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me, Lord. And this is a prayer. This is a cry. This is an invitation. Be thou my, and help, my, my helper. And then the psalmist says later in Psalm 54, verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. God, would you help? God, can you help? Yes, God desires to help. You know, God is one who represents himself as a father. It's a relational term. It's a connection that's there. A father that looks down upon his children and like any compassionate father would when he sees a child who is incomplete and unable, lacks resources, lacks ability, is not going to call that child to do something that they physically could not do unless they move in to help that child do something that they cannot do. <laughs> I, I, instance after instance is flowing through my brain, but I remember one time to where Easton is, you know, he's, he's not here, so I can talk about him. He was just a little guy, maybe five, six years old, and he's out there trying to move something super heavy, right? And I see him struggling, and I'm just watching him. I'm thinking, what's he going to do? I can come over there and move it so easy. Does he see me? Try to catch the line of sight. Does he see me? He sees me. I'm just watching him struggle, sweating, not able to do it. And then he looks over and sees me, and then he says, Hey, Dad, would you help me? Yeah, I'll help you. And I come over beside him, and I pick up one side of it, and he picks up the other, and I say, You start. <clears throat> he can't move it. But where he can, I just put in a little effort and move it. Right? To, to help somebody doesn't mean 
that they're going to do everything. Actually, the word help means to assist, support for future strength. God is a God who can help and wants to help. Why is it that God wants to help? Because he wants you to engage your faith in his grace. He wants you to engage your faith in his miracle. He wants you to engage your faith. What he has given you, it's a little bit. I know that it's not always as strong as it is at other times, but you've got it. He's graced you with it. Use it. And then he moves in with some power in his help. And where you can't, he can but he never will if you don't believe he, he will. If you assume, if you, if you accept as true based on uncertainty, you'll be confused and say God can't or God won't. And the whole time God is saying I can and I will. And what he is expecting from you and me through this entire process is faith expressed that says, God, this looks big. This looks difficult. That sin seemed to be unforgivable, not because of what it was, because of how many times I've done that. This, this life, man, I've, I've, I've messed up so much. How in the world can you make this better, change this for good? It seems like I just cycle things, God, can you come in and interrupt my cycle and change things, transform me? Can you help me? And the whole time God is saying, I can. <laughs> Not just I can, but I want to. I want to. I, 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 it is my delight. It is my desire. I, I have pleasure in forgiving you. I have pleasure in changing you. I have pleasure in helping you. When you see that it's seemingly to you too big, too tough, to where no one is able, rest assured in the fact that you've got a Father in heaven who with his word was able to create all things and with his power, he's able to change you. He can do that. What does he say? I'm gonna help you. This is what I'm expecting from you. Believe me. <laughs> believe me. When you believe me, then we can say to this mountain, get up and get into the sea. When you believe me, the obstacles will move and then the temperature will change. Things will happen. Let me ask you this, Embrace Church. Do you believe? Do you believe? This is what I want you to think as I get ready to wrap this up. What is it in your mind that right now you're struggling with? Sin that seems too consistent or too big. A life cycle that seems to be too repetitive or a place to where you don't think there's enough fertile soil to work with to grow from. Is God powerful enough to help? Can you place faith there? Can you say with your faith, God, I am bringing my faith to this place because I believe you're able. 
And not only can you, but you want to.